Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. This particular portion which begins there at chapter 16 verse 18 extends through Deuteronomy chapter 21 all the way to verse 9 and including verse 9. In the Hebrew this passage is called Shoftim and it comes from the word judges uh, there in verse 18. You shall appoint for yourself judges, Shoftim. Now before I go into this particular portion I thought I would give you just a little background on the word Shoftim uh, because it is a word which is used in the modern day and from this passage is the basis that uh, some would use it. Uh, rabbinical Judaism, the rabbis, refer to themselves and regard themselves authoritatively as the Shoftim of Israel, the judges of Israel. And since the time of the destruction of the temple, they have um, been in a position of authority, uh, teaching the Torah and being the judges of Israel within the community. Uh, within a very traditional Jewish community, the rabbi um, carries great weight in his opinion and decisions because many men will come to him for decisions uh, concerning matters of their life. And it is because he is the team. He's one of the judges. In modern day times, uh, particularly with regard to the Messianic movement, these are the Jewish people who become believers in Israel, they have in recent years raised up, as some of the Messianic rabbis have raised up, to follow after this tradition. And before we go in here further, I would like to um, kind of be on record, if you will, to say I think that this is a mistake. <clears throat> this passage uh, and the authorities that are listed here are very specific and they have limitations. And uh, as I go through this teaching of these positions of authority that God gives uh, to um, for the people uh, of Israel, uh, it's going to be pretty clear uh, as to what their purposes are for. And I believe that the modern-day application of the Shoftim is an inappropriate uh, um, use of the term and its authority for a number of reasons. And we'll, we'll look at those as we go through it. He goes on to say there from verse 18, uh, verse 19, You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, there in verse 20, in, in the Hebrew, it's just the word justice, justice. And the words and uh, where we say and only justice has been added for effect in the English to try to bring out the meaning. There's simply just two Hebrew words that say justice, justice, uh, there for it. But the explanation and the teaching, the traditional teaching that comes with this verse, says that when, as a judge, that one of the limitations for you to administer justice is that you are to do it in just ways. Uh, meaning that you sh that the ends shall not uh, justify the means, that the means by which that you administer the justice must also be done justly as well. A lot of people um, in the judicial system um, understand this principle and recognize the fact that if you're going to pursue uh, a wrongdoer, that you must pursue them in a legal and just way. Uh, that way that the innocent is protected as well, should he be falsely accused. Um, so in the same kind, this is what this verse means here. Now this is the first, uh, judges and officers is the first of the positions, of four positions that are listed here in this passage that God gives authority to, to do things with the nation of Israel. Let me just review them very quickly with you so you can take note of them, and then we'll go back and examine the passage in more detail. The first is a judge uh, and an officer, uh, the person who administers the civil and criminal court, the person who uh, arrests the, the wrongdoer, the, the lawbreaker. Uh, the next position 
that is listed here is the king. And um, so in, in chapter 17, he begins to address the issue of the king and how the king um, shall uh, rule. And there's limitations specified for the king. Chapter 18 is the teaching of the priests the, of the tribe of Levi and goes through and gives some instruction with regard to them. And then finally there in the latter part of chapter 18 is the prophet. Now let's go back and look at again what does it say about the judge because there are certain limitations that are given to judges uh, with regard to it. Now the one limitation is that you shall do it in a just way. So that's pretty obvious, but let's go a little bit further and see what it is that the Lord begins to say. Verse 21, you should not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of a tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. Neither shall you set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep, which has a blemish or any defect, for that is detestable to the Lord your God. If there is found in your midst, in any one of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you that you have heard it, you shall inquire thoroughly, and behold, if it is true, and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out the man or the woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. Verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Even though a judge would find a person guilty of an offense uh, that carries with it a death penalty, there are limitations specified by God. God says you cannot put someone to death on the evidence of just one witness. That may have convinced you that they're guilty, but there must be the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is completely consistent with the Torah teaching that no truth can be established except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I want to illustrate two points in the New Testament where this principle and these commandments are specifically addressed. The first is um, in, when Yeshua, in John chapter 5, was being specifically challenged and questioned as to whether or not he was the Messiah. And he specifically made reference to this principle of two or three witnesses when he said, if I say of myself that I am the Messiah, then it's not true. But that I need evidence of witnesses. But I do have those witnesses, but you don't believe the witnesses. You won't, you've dismissed the evidence uh, with regard to this. And it's only the accepted evidence that it can merit uh, the establishment of truth. Now, we could spend a whole hour just talking about this principle and, and how it is that Yeshua did present the evidence of two or three witnesses. He did satisfy the Torah with regard to this and how that evidences were dismissed and evidences were discarded and that uh, there was not a proper judgment made by the children of Israel with regard to who Yeshua was and his Messiahship. However, I want to move on into this passage and look at another element of this. With regard to the case of the death penalty, there was an incident that is described, I believe it's in John chapter 8, where a woman is caught in the very act of adultery. And while Yeshua is in the temple, the Pharisees bring this woman in and cast her down before him. And they say, Moses instructed us that if we catch a woman in the act of adultery, that she is to be stoned to death. What do you say? And it records for us that Yeshua was somewhat quiet and, and detached from those who were uh, bringing this complaint against this woman, and that he bent down and that he moved his hand in the dust of the, of the temple floor, and he began to use his finger and write in the dust. And then suddenly he stood and he said, I say to you, and he makes reference to this passage, he says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone because there were multiple witnesses there presenting themselves. 
But according to the verse there, uh, verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. He said, let him who is the witness and innocent, let him be for the first one to cast the stones. Now, in the case of adultery, this is a very intriguing um, uh, crime. It's not the kind of crime, it's not the kind of sin that people go out and do publicly. They, they tend to go privately. They tend to close themselves and, and close the doors and the windows and so forth so that no one is aware of it. And the question that Yeshua is really posing to those men at the time is, how is it that you knew this woman was caught in the act of adultery and you saw that she was in the act of adultery? When, How is it that you're witnesses to that? And in particular, how is it that you're witnesses to that and you are innocent? Because generally people who are witnesses to such acts are part of the guilty parties. And in this case, uh, it is recorded that the men, all silently, older men first, younger men last, began to drift off and they left. And Yeshua asked the woman, uh, where's your accusers? And she said, they've gone away. And so he said, well, you go and sin no more then. Um, but this particular passage of Scripture is the one that Yeshua was specifically referring to. Um, in that the witness who is the key witness uh, incriminating someone uh, who's worthy of death, as they are the ones who are to be the first elements of putting them to death, uh, to, to carry through uh, with their testimony that it's true. It seems to me there would be some sort of a breaking point if a, if a person had bo swore falsely against someone and it was the kind of evidence that would be used for the death penalty that somehow when it comes to the moment that they have to go and participate first in the killing of them that uh, there'd be a truth element that would come rumbling out if if it wasn't so um, my own personal opinion on the death penalty the death penalty is warranted it's appropriate uh, for certain cases but I believe that this commandment here with the idea that there must be at least two or three witnesses is is very key. You can't put that burden on a single person, nor can you allow justice uh, to be meted out in this way uh, with the cessation of a person's life on just simply the word of another person. There must have more evidence than that uh, to do it. I live in... Um, near Oklahoma City, and we had the Oklahoma City bombing, and there has been nothing that has gripped this community, for that matter, I think, the nation, than uh, this issue with regard to those who are charged with the crime as to whether or not they deserve the death penalty. I'll give you um, a little personal insight from my own community with regard to this. As soon as um, the guy who was charged and found guilty with this crime was found guilty, immediately everybody's attention shifted to the penalty phase and the call for the death penalty. And uh, there was great consideration given here in this community. And the, In fact, you could tell that in the community it, it, people were struggling with this. Do we want this or not? Uh, should we do this? Is this right? Is this justice? And so forth. Uh, the overwhelming consensus was yes, that um, you know he deserved the death penalty. However, there's an interesting thing that happened in the trial. Uh, the prosecutor did not put evidence on the trial of any eyewitnesses putting the guy who was charged at the truck at the bomb site. The, although there were witnesses that was supposedly had done it, he did not put those witnesses on. For me personally, knowing these commandments, had I been on that jury and they would have asked me, do I believe that the death penalty is appropriate in certain cases, I would have said yes. However, having sat there and believing that he was guilty, I could not have called for the death penalty against him because they failed to put on witnesses that actually put him at the scene, uh, that it's coincidental. And according to this teaching of the Torah, just because it's coincidental is insufficient for administration of the death penalty. You can find him guilty. But to put him to death requires two or three witnesses, and that those witnesses have to participate in the first part of the process. And I think that witnesses who are used in key criminal prosecutions like that should be in attendance uh, at the administration of the penalty. 
and that if they're unwilling to do it, that it's uh, that you can't carry it out. I believe those are hallmarks of real justice. A lot of people argue that the death penalty is or is not a deterrent. Uh, I know that the present way it's being administered is simply not a deterrent whatsoever. But I believe that if we followed the rules that God gave to us, that it would be a deterrent. If we would do it the way he specifies, it would accomplish that which is needful uh, to have um, a civil uh, community and uh, those who who would uh, break the law and would harm others, that justice would be done. Again, I go back to verse 20 in chapter 16, justice and only justice. In other words, to pursue justice, do it justly. And that's what this passage gives to us, some rules on how to pursue justice. There are limitations on these judges as to how and the way uh, that uh, justice is to be meted out. Verse 8 of chapter 17 says, If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest, to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. And here we set up a system to where that there's a local judge, and then there is a, you know, if you will, a Supreme Court or an appellate court. Uh, there's a higher court that you can force the case up to uh, to do it. And that is an appropriate system uh, for the, the proper decision to be rendered, to bring together the greater expertise, the greater energy to determine um, the truth and justice uh, with regard to it. Verse 10, and you shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from the place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. Uh, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declared to you, to the right or the left. And the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, and the man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. The, um, the reason why the priest is involved is because there is an element of this that is presented before the altar of God. And that's the reason why there's a limitation right from the beginning that says you shall not plant a tree, you shall not put a sacred pillar near the, near the altar. The idea behind that is, is that they would uh, declare from the tree that that's the possibility of the administration of justice uh, from the standpoint of a sacred pillar that they might record their rulings. Uh, you, justice shall only be determined by the Lord, not by man. And justice shall not be a mixing of the things of God with the things of men. Um, and that's the reason why that you went to the priest separate from, from any of the others, that when you elevated the case. And that's the reason why God specifically specifies, don't be sticking any sacred pillars besides my altar. My altar will stand alone. My justice, the Lord, will stand alone. It will not be mixed with that of men. And then the decision that is, is passed down, it says, you shall follow that decision. In other words, that will be the final decision. And you will do according to what they say. Uh, which is essentially the justice of the Lord. When you appeal to the Lord for a matter, if the Lord gives you a decision, there is no more appeal process. You don't go to another court after the Lord has given his decision on something and try to mix his decision uh, with another court's decision. Um, uh, some would argue that this is the proper separation of church and state, maybe. Well, uh, let me put it this way. If the state can't decide it, then God will. And if the God decides it, then that's it. The decision is clear. No state is going to go back and re uh, change that or to alter that uh, decision. Of course, in our society and in our country, that's, of course, offended uh, quite frequently because God gives many decisions with regard to certain behaviors, and we still don't follow them uh, to it. The second person who's in a position of authority is the king. And, well, let me back up for a moment. Let me tell you, how does a judge become a judge? If you will look there in verse 18 of chapter 16, it says, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns. Judges are appointed by the people. They're entrusted uh, with the authority to do the things that need to be done. 
judges aren't called by God. Uh, judges aren't set in by the king. And the priests don't decide who the judges will be. They're appointed by the people. And so this is where the people get to say who will be a judge within our community. Where if there's a matter to be judged, we ask, is there not a wise man amongst us who can be raised up, who can judge this matter uh, for us? From that standpoint, and that standpoint alone, you could say that a rabbi or a wise man in the community is risen up to be a one of the shof team, uh, to be a judge of the matter. But I want you to know that his authority comes from the authority that comes from the people, not necessarily his authority that comes from God. But God gives some limitations on how that authority is to be used uh, here in this particular case. For those of my messianic brethren, uh, who are messianic rabbis who would go around calling themselves the shof team, I would remind them that a shof, a shof team, the judges, are appointed by the people and they are not necessarily called by God. Uh, so if you're going around claiming that you have the authority of God uh, and you're one of the shof team, I have news for you. Your authority comes from the people, not from God. And if you're intending to be a man of God, then you don't want to necessarily go around calling yourself a judge. Uh, the king, uh, this uh, passage here deals with the whole idea, and in fact it speaks prophetically to the, that the people of Israel would one day rise up and say, we want to be like the other nations, we want, we want a king. Well, God was their king, and God is their king uh, of Israel. However, they want a king man, you know, like, like the other nations, you know, they want a king. So the Lord says, well, if you call for the king, it's I, God, who chooses who gets to be king. Now, you would think the people get to name the king, or the king would get to name the king, but the fact of the matter is God chooses who the king is. And this is true of all national leaders, I believe, this principle. If a man is a national leader, or a woman, for that matter, is a national leader, then he or she is in that office and in that position because God decided them to be in it, and they will not be leaving office until God decides that they leave office. Um, in this country, <clears throat> in the United States of America, we all vote for the president, and the Electoral College makes a determination as to who will be the president. However, I can tell you it is a fact, a spiritual fact, that the guy who becomes president is, is so because of the will of God not necessarily because of the will of the people. <clears throat> now, you could ask yourself, why in the world did God will, then, for this country at this present time to have the, the sitting president that we have? Well, I would remind you that the way God used to judge uh, the, uh, Israel in the past was that the first level of judgment that was put upon a nation was to give them a bad king. And I believe that in the case of our country, that God has given us a bad king, and it's for the purpose of judging us uh, for it. For that's the first level of our behavior. Um, the passage says there in, in um, chapter 17, verse 14, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. And you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So the first limitation right off the bat is that the king must be one of the sons of Israel who's going to be the king of Israel. Almost all nations have this same principle. Our own constitution in the United States says that you cannot be the president of the United States if you've not been born in this country. Uh, it, and this is one of the reasons why Henry Kissinger was, could never run for president of the United States. He was not born here, um, uh, which goes back into a little American history for you. For, uh, verse 16 says, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply um, uh he shall not cause them to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. This is a very interesting example, because uh, the third king of Israel, Solomon, did exactly these things. 
he basically had a whole bunch of horses. In fact, one of the great archaeological finds in Jerusalem is Solomon's stables. Um, he had multiple wives, and he had lots of gold and silver. And, and thus we have the books, Ecclesiastes written for it, and the books of Proverbs written for us, based on his experiences and the wisdom that he gained from that. And, of course, if you remember in the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, well, you know, everything is vanity, and the only thing that is left that is, has any value is to obey the Lord um, and to follow after him. So here's limitations upon the king. The king doesn't have absolute authority. Uh, the king's authority is limited uh, to that which is specified by God, and there are limitations on him. So judges are appointed by people. God chooses the king. Now we come to the priest, chapter 18, verse 1. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion, and they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. One of the key questions that is always asked is, how did you become a, key, how did you become a priest? If you're going to be a priest of Israel and serve at the altar, how do you do it? Well, you're born into it. You're, you have, you're one of your fathers has to be Aaron. And whereas priests don't appoint themselves, uh, priests come, their inheritance as a priest comes from their fathers. So we have a judge who's appointed by the people, a king who's chosen by God, and priests, uh, it's the inheritance of the fathers. Uh, for them, and that's where they get their authority. They get their authority through their father's line uh, for it. I don't know if you're getting the sense of this yet, but when we get to prophets, you will notice that all four of these positions of, of judge, king, priest, and prophet are all positions that the Messiah himself serves in. Now, instead of being after the order of the Levites, or the Levitical priesthood, our Messiah in his priestly role, is after the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the, the um, priest uh, whom that Abraham paid tithes to. Uh, so he fills all of these roles. So whether you realize it or not, this is a teaching that was all about the Messiah as well uh, in these positions of authority. In the case of the priest, he gives limitations as to what he's permitted to receive and what his gain uh, shall be, that he receives of the first fruits uh, of the land, and that uh, he, re he resides in the city, and he receives that which is the inheritance of the Lord. And it goes on uh, then further uh, to the point where it deals with the subject of prophets. And in the, uh, toward the end of chapter 18, well, let me back up for just a bit. Uh, it gives a limitation to the children of Israel <clears throat> as to whom the, can they seek for counsel uh, to it. And there's a very specific commandment that says, when you in, uh, this is in verse 9 of chapter 18, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall be no one found among you, anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You should be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, uh, the reason why that this is put here is because when you go to seek spiritual counsel, you know, the Lord says you seek spiritual counsel from the priest. You don't go to just anybody who has some spiritual counsel to offer. And in the case of, in our modern day, this has become a, a very, very apparent issue. The, uh, I don't know if you've noticed on some of the cable televisions and some of the other television ads, they now run ads for psychics who will interpret and tell you the future and read your palm and do other kinds of things. That they, this is what this commandment is about, is that you will have nothing to do with them. You will have nothing to do with an astrology chart. You will have nothing to do with a person who represents themselves in any psychic capacity. 
tarot cards, any of that witchcraft and nonsense. You'll have nothing to do with it. By the way, it's not because they don't have a power and they don't have an influence over people because they do. It's just that you will not seek after their spiritual counsel. It is That's death to you. Uh, it is not life. Uh, the Lord is life to us, and that's the spiritual counsel that we will seek after. Now, I bring that up uh, so that uh, for those of you who, who see that kind of stuff, that you can have a clear perspective you know, as to what the teaching of the Torah is concerning this subject. And when you see those ads and so forth, you're to have nothing to do with it. Just turn away from it completely. Now we can, and this is part of the limitation, part of the teaching with regard to the role of the priest. Now we come to the passage that has to do with prophets. Let's review. A judge is appointed by the people. A king is chosen by God. A priest uh, comes by way of the fathers. Now where in the world does a prophet come from? Well, it turns out, according to this passage, that it comes in accordance with an agreement that was made between the children of Israel and the God of Israel way back at the mountain. And in verse 16, it says, This is according to all that you have asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And what had happened was is that God from the top of the mountain spoke the Ten Commandments. And all of the children of Israel were down below, below the mountain, and they all, all the people, heard the voice of God, and they heard the Ten Commandments spoken. You know, those initial words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that first commandment. Now, when they heard the voice, the whole mountain shook. When they heard the voice, the voice, the, the voice was very loud. There was a sound of a shofar that was ear-splitting. The voice of God was thunderous, it said. Upon It was like, you know, big bolts of thunder uh, all around them uh, as his voice. And in fact, I tell people that the sound probably echoed off their bones and probably made the cheeks of their face uh, flutter just a little bit because of the large sound waves that were coming. In any case, they were extremely afraid. And they felt that if they heard the voice of God again, that they would die. I'm sure that there were babies crying and mothers concerned and tears welled up in people's eyes. And, and the book of Hebrews says that even Moses was in fear and trembling uh, when he heard the voice of God. So they came to Moses and they said, Moses, you go up, you talk to God. Whatsoever God says to you, that's what we will do. Uh, because if we hear the voice of God again, we will surely die. Well, God said that he heard the voice of the people. And he said this was a good thing that they had said. And then, of course, he commented, oh, if they only had a heart uh, to go with the voice that I heard. Because he said, I will send a prophet to them. I will send someone from the mountain down to them. And he will speak the word of the Lord to them. And I will require it of them, what he says. Now, we come to the issue, we know that there is this thing that God can raise up a prophet. In fact, it says there in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to the words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But wait a minute, you know, what's the limitations on a prophet? I mean, how are we to know and deal with that we're dealing with a real prophet or we're just dealing with some guy who's playing with this system and trying to use the authority of God? Well, this is the one true case where a prophet, how does a guy become a prophet? It's because he's been called by God and he's received the authority from God to do it. And the authority of God comes in the speaking of his name uh, for it to do it. Now, he says here, he says, what's the limitation? In verse 21, he says, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And he goes to say, he says, if a guy comes down and he uses my name and he says such and such is going to happen, and if it doesn't happen, then you know that that guy did not come from the Lord, because I won't lie to you. I will speak the truth to you. And that he has spoken presumptuously of the Lord. And it says that you will not reverence him, you will not fear him, you will not regard him as speaking for 
the Lord in that manner. Um, at that point, uh, it's it's kind of interesting because that's you would think, okay, that's the one test. Well, that's not really the only test. This is not the only limitation of it. If you go back into Deuteronomy 13, it clearly says if a prophet comes to you and he tries to lead you away from the Lord, he tries to lead you away from the commandments of the Lord, even though he does signs and wonders and other things come true that he has said, that guy's false. In other words, when the guy comes to be a prophet, there's a couple of things on him that he has to do. For example, he can't be leading you away from the Lord, and that if he makes these big predictions in the name of the Lord, then they must happen. They must come true uh, for it. But there's also another, there's other teaching with regard to prophets, in, particularly in the last days. And, the, and I would position us for this particular point. In the last days, it says, Yeshua said there would be many false prophets. And he, of course, told us that we are to examine not only the fruit, but the tree itself, uh, to determine if, in fact, the guy is a true prophet or a false prophet. <clears throat> to go the extra distance to make that determination. And uh, in the case of... Uh, of false prophets that are in our midst today, you could ask the ask the question very simply. So, well, you know, I know Yeshua said there's to be many false prophets in these last days. How how will we recognize them? Because some of them are to be able to do signs and wonders and so forth. So, how how can we still recognize whether they are true or false? There's a very interesting um, interchange that exists in the time of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 28, uh, Jeremiah has made the prophecy to the children of Israel that they are going to go into the captivity and be in captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years. That following with the teaching principle of Moses who said that for every year that you do not keep the sabbatical year, which is every seven years, give the land its rest, that I, the Lord, will kick you out of the land, put you in the hands of your enemies, and there you will serve the number of years that you did not give the land its rest. Now, they had been in the land for 490 years, and Jeremiah prophesied that for 70 years they would go into captivity with the Babylonians. Well, that was bad news, you know, and, and to illustrate it, he had made a wooden yoke uh, that, that literally uh, came down around his neck and sat upon his shoulders, and he would, and Jeremiah would go into the temple, and he would prophesy, and he would teach that uh, that God has put a yoke uh, upon Israel called the Babylonians. Well, there was another man that was there. His name was Hananiah. Hananiah was a prophet, but he was a false prophet. And one day when Jeremiah came in, Hananiah walked up to um, Jeremiah. And he uh, took this wooden yoke off of his shoulders, and he broke the thing in two. And he stood up and held the two pieces, and he says, uh, Thus saith the Lord, that uh, the Lord shall return the children of uh, Judah and, uh, the, and the vessels, holy vessels of the temple, and return it back to the land of Israel within two years. And that sounded like a good word. In fact, uh, Jeremiah said, well, you know, may it be if that's what the Lord has said. Well, a little bit later, the Lord dispatches Jeremiah to Hananiah and goes to him and says, um, Hananiah, you're not a true prophet of God. God did not tell you to say that. You said that of your own imagination. But you have prophesied correctly of the two parts because you will die within two months. And Hananiah did. And in fact, Jeremiah then came back and said, God has taken and broken the wooden yoke and now has made it an iron yoke, you know, upon the children of Israel. And as a result, um, they will be in captivity for the 70 full years. Uh, Jeremiah has a lot to say about the contrast between a true prophet and a false prophet. Now, Jeremiah was not well liked uh, by the leadership of Israel. And there is, in fact, no true prophet who will be liked by the spiritual leadership of any people. Um, if, if a guy is walking around and advertising himself as a prophet and he's well liked by the spiritual leadership of the land, it's a pretty good sign that he's a false prophet, that he's not a true prophet. If he's hated, if he's ostracized, if he's cursed uh, by the leadership and by some of the leaders uh, in the community, 
then he, he, in all likelihood, you need to look at him very seriously. He may, in fact, be a true prophet. Because no prophets have operated uh, uh, with the people, but what that they weren't uh, hated uh, to a very great extent. They hated Jeremiah so bad they cast him down the bottom of a well, you know, to get rid of him. Um, and there he was ministered to before the Lord delivered him from the well. Um, Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 23, he talks about in the last days there would be certain prophets that would be coming. Now in the last days we're right at the stage where we're getting ready for the day of the Lord. And of course the contrast would be that there would be people who were saying, yes, the day of the Lord is coming, and the contrast would be saying, no, the day of the Lord is not yet coming. And so the way Jeremiah contrasts this whole issue, he says, if a man comes to you and he says to you that you shall have peace and no calamity shall come upon you, that this man is a false prophet, that he has not spoken these words uh, from the Lord, he's spoken them out of his imagination. And he further goes on to say that the judgment of God shall come like a whirlwind down upon the heads of all of those people. And then finally, he says, in the last days, you will clearly understand this. When Yeshua makes reference to false prophets being in our day, he's really making reference to specifically those who would come and give that message. You shall have peace and no calamity shall come upon you. Now, let me make this <clears throat> a very direct and personal application for you. If you're listening to certain spiritual leaders in this day, the last days, <clears throat> who are telling you that you're a member of the church and that you're not subject to the judgment of God in any way, shape, or form, that you will escape either by rapture or because of your position membership in the church, you will escape the judgment of God, you're listening to a false prophet. Now, it is true that God is full of mercy, but God is also just. And this is the coming for the days of judgment, not for the days of mercy. We've already had those. Now, you can either accept the sacrifice of Yeshua and receive mercy from him, or you can accept the judgment. And it says there uh, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 23, which you should read and spend a little time with, it says that the people who get told that they shall have peace and no calamity shall come on are the people who despise God and those who act stubbornly before the Lord. And that pretty well describes the modern church today. We do actually despise God and the things of God, and we also are, are a very stubborn people. So let us review um, um, these four positions of authority uh, that God gives um, over the people. Uh, the first is the judge or the officer. He's appointed by the people. The, the uh, king, he's chosen by God. The priest, that comes by the father's line. And a prophet is called, is called by God to specifically come and do it. I've always uh, told people that if you had a choice of uh, these various jobs, I'm not sure you really would want them. Uh, a judge is never going to be able to satisfy everyone. So you're always going to be dealing with very difficult cases and decisions, and there's nothing easy about that. A king is always somebody wants your life, you know, when you're a king. Somebody doesn't want you to be a king. And you're always hoping that God will continue to keep you in there being the king as long as he wants. Um, in the case of the uh, priest, um, it's determined by your lineage. You didn't, you know, that you didn't have any say whatsoever about it. It's just your destiny from birth. And in the case of prophets, since all the prophets are get hated, true prophets get hated by uh, the spiritual leaders and uh, and they get killed and stoned and, and hated and cursed and so forth, who would want that job? I don't care if you do get some authority from the Lord. So what? You know, who wants it? Um, and uh, it presents an interesting dilemma that for you to be in these positions, you need to be very careful and very mindful <clears throat> as to your authorities and your responsibilities to it. Um, I have learned in going out and ministering to many people that I need to be extremely careful about what I say and what I do because people uh, hang uh, on every word, every action 
uh, to it, and I need to be wise and do only that which the Lord wants me to do. Say only that which the Lord wants me to say, um, to be an effective minister to to uh, to the people. As you look down to the uh, rest of this passage, chapter 19 presents for us um, uh, certain laws and commandments with regard to the issue of the crime of manslaughter. Uh, this manslaughter differs from murder in that manslaughter was accidental, but someone died just the same. Um, and in the case here, he specifies the difference between murder and manslaughter. And he talks about how that manslaughter is one, it's the it's an unintentional death. There was no hatred beforehand. Um, and that there was an accident. There was something that happened. In this case, uh, verse 5, he talks about the accident caused by the swinging of an axe and that the head of the axe slips off and strikes the man killing him. Now, <clears throat> there's great passion when there is the loss and accident of, of another person. Uh, I can't, I've, I have personally not had to deal with or suffer the loss of a member of my family, um, either parents, brothers, sisters, children, wife, or whatever, as a result of the hand of another person. But I can imagine uh, that if people have gone through that, that has got to be extremely traumatic. It's one thing to, um, you know, die of an old age and of disease. It's another thing to have been struck down early in your life by the hand of another person, even if it was an accident. And there's great passion uh, involved in such things. And in this case, the Torah recognizes that such passions exist. And so it gives opportunity for the man who has caused this uh, to escape so that he is not subject to the revenge or the vengeance of another person against him. I recall a story uh, back many years ago uh, of a very similar thing of this, in which that uh, a colleague, a business colleague of mine, uh, was driving um, one weekend. He was going to um, a lake, and uh, he had his van and his family, and they were going down to the reservoir to spend the weekend. And another man uh, with his family was also traveling down there, and the other man who was ahead of them uh, got a flat tire on his boat or trailer or something and stopped his vehicle along the side of the interstate and got out and was either repairing it or investigating or whatever, and apparently was standing too close um, to the lane, the traffic lane. And when this other friend of mine came driving along uh, on a curve, not being able to see him at a distance, suddenly came upon him and in a br very brief moment struck the man on, uh, on the edge of the van and killed him. Um, and I remember him going through the, the great pain and discomfort of uh, knowing that he had accidentally uh, taken a man's life, of that that man's family was shattered as a result, the breadwinner and uh, so forth was uh, taken away. And him, I remember having a conversation with him about how that the other man's family was just so filled with uh, bitterness and vengeance toward him that they were trying to get the district attorney to uh, charge him with vehicular homicide and instead of it just being an accident and um, uh, how he had to go to court and had to do community service, and it, was, it weighed on it very, very heavily uh, to it. I remember sitting down and talking with him about these passages of Scripture, how God recognized that such things happen, and that uh, while God recognizes the, uh, the uh, passion of the victims and their feelings about this and their hatred toward him, he also recognized the need for safety, for the manslayer, and so he established the cities of refuge. And the idea was that if the man would move there to the city of refuge, he could not be harmed or touched, and he was to be considered exempt uh, from those things. Now, the cities of refuge were never for the case of an escaping murderer. It was for the case of an unintentional accidental death, if there was such passion on the part of the victim's families with regard to it, that he could be protected while living in that city in the, one of the three cities of refuge. And these teachings go on to give us uh, about what those are about. <clears throat> in verse um, chapter 19 um, and, and um, verse 7 it says, 
Well, matter of fact, let me back up. Let me read from verse 4 of chapter 19. Now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a man goes into the forest with his friend cut wood, and his hand swings the ass to cut, cut, cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so as that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him, because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated him previously. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall set aside three cities for yourself. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land which he has promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be on you. Now, of course, it goes on and says, wait a minute, if the guy hated him and, and did this so as he lied and wait, then he shall not be able to go to the cities of refuge and so forth. He'll be tried for um, murder as opposed to manslaughter. This is a very, very difficult um uh, issue should it ever happens in a person's life and I remember specifically ministering to this friend and him being very distraught over the matter and and it kind of was a a little consolation to him it was it was a kind of a you know he didn't know how to deal with this with the Lord and I said well the Lord understands your situation and he's established the cities of refuge and I said now not having the cities of refuge in our country my recommendation to you a friend is you need to seek the refuge of the Lord, you know, concerning these matters. And that seemed to minister to him, that as long as he stayed in the refuge of the Lord, he would be safe, him and his family. And I think that's really the principle that's here uh, concerning uh, all of these matters as well. There's a reference made to boundary marks, about not moving boundary marks, um, uh, for it and about administering justice and dealing uh, judge uh, in a just manner a reference back to our Shoftim passage and in verse 18 of chapter 19 it says and the judges shall investigate thoroughly and the witness is a false witness then he he has accused his brother falsely then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother thus you shall purge the evil from among you and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do any evil such thing among you Thus you shall not show pity, lie for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the idea being here is, is that let us, it's not so much that we're trying to execute vengeance here, it's that we're trying to be administer that which is right and appropriate, that which is right and correct uh, with regard to the judgment of all of these matters. And that really brings us to the issue of how do we deal with authority. Authority is a thing which most people reject. And in fact, within you, the spirit of rebellion is really the rebellion against authority. And in the case of priest or judge or officer, prophet or king, uh, the issue is over authority and the rejection of it. Now, I want to show you an interesting feature that exists between those positions. If a judge misbehaves, how is he to be corrected? Uh, well, a, a king could correct him. Uh, a priest could correct him. You know, in fact, the priest was used at the upper echelons of the judgment system. Um, in the case of a priest, how would he necessarily be corrected? Well, king really doesn't have any authority over him. The judge can't do much with him, uh, but his father, you know, can administer authority over him. In the case of a king, who's going to administer over a king? Who's going to enforce the king to do anything? Well, it gets tougher. Uh, there's not anybody powerful enough except for one man, and that is a prophet. The guy who comes with the authority of God can come and deal with the king and, and uh, his matters. And in fact, that's how God used the kings quite uh, uh, a lot is that he came to prophesy to the kings. I want to recount for you a very famous story about 
King David and the prophet Nathan. Uh, David had uh, uh, seen Bathsheba, had lusted after her, had sent uh, uh, Uriah, her husband, uh, the Hittite, who was one of his 30 mighty men, had sent him into the fiercest part of the battle and he had been killed. In effect, David had him murdered. He then took the wife of Uriah and made him her, his wife and uh, committed adultery with her. Now, Nathan, who, who's going to come and tell the king, King David, that, hey, you've done a wrong thing? What, Uriah's family's going to come and say this? Uh, you know, who, who, who's going to say anything? Well, Nathan the prophet does come to King David, and he asked to have a moment with him that he had a small matter for him to judge. And so he says, well, what is the matter? And he says, well, it's about a man, um, a master with a servant. The servant has one lamb which he cherishes, and the, and the master has many sheep and many lambs, and the master decides to hold a feast. And instead of going out and getting one of his lambs or one of his sheep, he directs that the lamb that belongs to the servant, that it's the one to be slaughtered and used for the feast. And so he takes the servant's land, and he does exactly that with, with anger and bitterness. And so Nathan says, what is your judgment concerning this matter? And King David says, the, the, um, uh, the master is to be killed, and that all of his possessions are to go to the servant. And uh, Nathan very quickly says, well, King David, you are the man in question. Because you've taken Uriah's lamb, Bathsheba, and you have used her for yourself, for your own feast, and have caused him to, to suffer loss. Of which point, and this is the work of a prophet with a king, because he says exactly the right words that will speak to his heart, it said immediately that David fell off the throne onto his face before God and repented before the Lord. This is the effective work of the prophet. It's to come in to t turn and get those to repent uh, from it. Uh, a brother up in Colorado uh, brought this point out, and I agree with him on this, that a true prophet is really going to come and speak to you about three things. Um, he will speak to you of the plight of the widow and the orphan, those who are in need, who have been wronged. He will speak to the, the separation between the holy and the profane, calling the people to holiness and to avoid the profane, the profane things. And lastly, he will speak of Sabbath. He will speak of the things of the Creator of God and His purposes. Um, and in this case, you can look back upon the prophets. You can see them all speaking to these messages. Uh, for if a true prophet's going to come into your midst, he's going to have the right words at the right moment for the right guy, and he's going to deal, in a general sense, with these other key issues uh, at the same time. That's the reason why God establishes these positions. It's uh, uh, All matters could be decided by a king. All matters could be decided by the priests and by the judges. But the fact is, what do you do when they misbehave? What do you do when they lead the people astray? That's the reason why God sends a prophet to send direction, to come down for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness to draw the people back. And this is clearly the case in the history of the nation of Israel, how the prophets have come. They always came and antagonized the leadership, the priesthood, uh, the, um, and the leadership uh, of the land of Israel. And thus was the case of our prophet, the Messiah, the prophet, who came and he antagonized the leadership uh, of the land and the religious leadership of the land, and uh, and called them into question and check for the things that they were doing. Um, you know, we only call prophets prophets after they're dead. Um, while they're alive, why they're just heretics. You know, they're evil people. And uh, it's not any different today uh, than it was in the previous generations. I remind people that we are simply sons of the same men who did the same things before, um, to even to this day. Well, uh, so much uh, for the case of uh, prophets and uh, so forth. Now we come to chapter 20, and we deal with a very interesting passage of Scripture. This is a fascinating 
thing that has to do when you go out to battle. Uh, verse Chapter 20, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, is with you. And there's a very interesting um, uh, uh, exclusion that is made for certain people who do not need to fight in the battle. It says that uh, when the men shall gather, the officers, uh, this is verse 5, shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicated. So you could be excluded from the battle if you had built a new house and had not yet dedicated it or lived in it. Verse 6, And who is the man that has planted a vineyard? And has begun to and has not begun to use its fruit. Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man begin to use its fruit. It was a labor's task to put in a vineyard, and if you'd put one in and you have not yet eaten of the fruit of it, uh, that was an unfulfilled expectation there, and it would you'd have your mind on those things instead of on the battle, and so you could be dispatched back from it. If a man is engaged to a woman and has yet not married her, he was dismissed. And then we come to the final one. Verse 8. Then the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he may not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Interesting. Basically, you know, they would assemble all the sons of Israel, and the dynamic when something like this, they've already dismissed the guy who hasn't lived in his house or, has been, or eaten of his vineyard and who has not yet married his wife. And then they raise up and they ask the question, who's the coward amongst us? And I don't know if you can imagine the scene. Can you imagine some guy handing, holding up his hand and saying, yeah, I'm a coward? What it really was was a case of to encourage uh, the the warriors at that point to remind them that the Lord is with them and that they need to put their mind on the battle. And even though they didn't have these other important things happening in their life, that they can't be going into the battle and be faint-hearted and be afraid of the enemy. I think the applicability of this passage of Scripture is just overwhelming when it comes to the subject of what you and I are getting ready to face in the days ahead. The fact of the matter is that at the end of the age, there's to be a period of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. It will be a great battle. The battle will begin in the heavenlies and come to the earth. And it will be a battle between God and his enemies. And we are, are part of, of the host of the Lord of hosts. And before we go into this battle, the Lord says that... Um, wants to know, is there any afraid or faint-hearted? Because if you are, you will infect other brethren around you. You will not believe the Lord. You will not trust the Lord, and as a result, you'll cause many to fall. With regard to the preparation for the Great Tribulation, what you need to ask yourself is, you need to perform this role, and you need to say, am I afraid? Am I faint-hearted with regard to these things? And if you are, then you need to specifically get that straightened out with the Lord. You need to start trusting and obeying the Lord. And if you are faint-hearted and you don't believe the Lord, then I have news for you. You will not be in the battle. The Lord will remove you, or you'll remove yourself. And in either case, that's not good for you. So this is a very uh, important little teaching here, uh, that that talks about how we go into battle. And I believe that has great application for how we're going to go into the battle at the end of days. Uh, that's the application that I would encourage you to do uh, with regard to this passage, is you need to go and examine yourself and ask yourself, you know, who do I believe in and who am I? Uh, do I belong to the Lord? And is the Lord with me? And if the Lord is with me, then trust him and believe him as you go into these difficult times that are ahead of us. And if you don't, then you're going to be out of the battle. Either that or you're going to infect other people and cause them to be faint-hearted as well. In either case, those are not good things, either for you or for others. So, uh, the rest of this passage um, 
kind of ends up uh, dealing with uh, uh, laying siege and other things associated with the battle. It deals with uh, blood guiltiness if uh, someone um, unknown uh, does harm to another man or person as to what should be done with regard to blood guiltiness. And it required the elders of the city to go out and to uh, sacrifice a heifer and to say before the Lord that we are not responsible for you, Lord, for the shedding of this innocent blood. So we ask that you forgive us. Because the Lord will hold all of us accountable uh, for those things. In the case of the United States of America and other nations, I believe that the Lord will hold us responsible for innocent blood being shed in the form of unborn babies and abortion. Now, I don't, maybe maybe your uh, political point of view is, is uh, not in favor of that. I understand that. However, I'm telling you this is the way God sees the matter. And the way God sees the matter is, is that he holds the people responsible you know, for those things going on around us. Um, and there's only one way that uh, we can uh, be absolved of that, and that is through the Lord. Well, brethren, this uh, concludes our uh, teaching on uh, Shof Team. And if you would, please bow with me and let us pray. Father, we thank you for um, today. We thank you, Lord, for, again, the Torah teaching. And, Lord, this particular portion, Shof Team, is just loaded full of instruction for us, instruction about authorities, instruction, Lord, with regard to um, manslaughter, the manslayer, with instruction about going into the battle. And, Lord, I would pray that uh, you would pour out uh, your commandments into us, that you would pour out your blessing into us concerning uh, your word. We know, Lord, that if we'll obey it, that we'll receive a blessing. If that we don't obey it, that we receive a curse. Lord, I would pray that you would pour out the blessing because the hearts of the people who hear this instruction would want to obey you. And, Lord, that they might love you, they might cling to you. So, Lord, we thank you for this portion. We thank you, Lord, for Yeshua, our Messiah, who is our judge, who is our priest, who is our king, and is our prophet. And we thank you, Lord, that you've sent him down to do this. And, Lord, we submit ourselves to his authority in those positions as you uh, use him to lead us. We thank you in his name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405 405- 447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.